Hi, my name is Brendan, and I've been helping Steve produce this show. And I thought that it would be a good idea for the two of us to sit down and kind of take a more in-depth look into Steve's journey to writing this book and discuss a brief overview of what the book is. So here we go. So I think it would be good for our listeners to know, you know, why did you start all this? Yeah. Where did it come from? So I was facing graduation from Bible college. I graduated with a, a major in Bible and preaching, and I was looking for a job. My fiance at the time, who's now my wife, she had one more year of college, and I just needed work for a year. And I stumbled somewhat by accident into hospital chaplaincy, the local teaching hospital, University of Tennessee Hospital. It was the only level one trauma center in the area. They were hiring a slate of chaplains. I went into interview. Uh, it became very clear up front that I was too young. I didn't have a master's degree and I was too inexperienced. And I came away from the interview thinking, I have no chance at this job. And even if I get the chance, do I really want it? It sounded super intense. And crazily enough, they gave me the job. And so a few months later, uh, my wife and I got married. We went on our honeymoon. And then the first day uh, after my honeymoon was my first day as a hospital chaplain. It was a 28-hour overnight shift. So if you've ever seen those hospital dramas on TV, uh, you know, a, a, a doctor or a medical student becomes a medical resident and a ministry student uh, becomes a chaplain resident. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. So if that's what you did, then where, where did this whole anxiety thing come into play? Right. So I'm 24 years of age and the whole model of training, it's known as clinical pastoral education. There's probably several, several ministry students who have done that themselves. And the whole exercise is they refuse to tell you what to do. So for example, within the first couple of hours of being a chaplain, we're touring the hospital and one of my beepers goes off. This is back in the day when everyone had pages. And I remember turning to my supervisor because I had several beepers on my body because I was the overnight guy. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what's the blue beeper for? Because the blue beeper was going off. And he said, oh, that's the code team. That means someone's heart has stopped in the hospital and chaplain's on the code team. And he said, you got to go. And I had no idea, like, what am I going to do? So I said, well, what do I do now? And he said, well, it's going to be interesting to find out, isn't it? And I couldn't believe it, like no training at all. So then I said, well, what if I make a mistake? And he got real serious and he looked at me and he said, you're going to make hundreds of mistakes this year. Wow. And that was it. So I went in and, and the whole process in this year of chaplaincy was you plunge in, you deal like viscerally leading people through grief and trauma. And then every morning for an hour and a half, you debrief with your group. And in that debrief, they, they help you figure out what's going on under the surface. What are some of the things in your own life that are getting in the way of being present with people in pain? So, for example, I'd only been a hospital chaplain a few weeks when any time the emergency room people would go off, I'd run down to the emergency room and I'd start praying. And I'd say, God, please don't let it be my wife. And then I'd say, God, please don't let it be anyone I know. Because that's, that's the worst. Like that person's coming through the double doors on the gurney. Their head is strapped to the gurney. There's an EMT on them, straddling them, giving them the CPR. And, and when you see a person like that, they're just staring up. They can't move and they're wondering, am I going to make it? And so I just don't want that to be my wife. And so then as I get to the emergency room and it's not my wife and it's not anyone I know, 
then I prayed another prayer. And the prayer I prayed was, God, thank you that it's not my wife. It's not anyone I know. And it took me a while to realize that that prayer is very similar to the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, when he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. Mm. And I realized in that moment and through this experience, I cannot be fully present to people when I'm celebrating that I'm not them. And if I keep staying at that prayer, I'm never going to be an effective chaplain. So what you have to do is you have to notice and name your fears, your internal triggers, the kinds of people that make you mad, all the different things that are bubbling under the surface of all of us. And you have to be able to bring it to the surface and name it and uh, try to move through it. And fast forward 20 plus years, I've been in all kinds of leadership situations since that chaplaincy experience. I mean, chaplaincy was like a baptism of fire. What really surprised me is everything I learned in chaplaincy is the same in leadership. You have the same triggers, the same anxieties, you have the same judgment of people, the same things that block you from being fully present to people that really hinder leadership. Yeah. I want to I jump back real quick, back to the, the chaplaincy thing. Um, what type of anxiety did you experience when that was going on. Right. And I'm, I'm assuming that that didn't stop right away. You're talking about this class that you went through and how it, it helped you kind of navigate that. But I'm guessing you had this the anxiety for those situations probably more often than not. Is That's that right. correct? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, when you're a chaplain, you're in these situations uh, easily multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. Like some of the worst shifts were when you're doing these marathon 28-hour shifts and there's multiple deaths and multiple bad news. So for sure, in the early days, I, I would say, I wasn't even aware that I was anxious. All I knew is I felt this terrible thing, but I had no ability to name it, or I, I had no way to move through it. So looking back, I can tell you what, it was, what I was feeling, but I couldn't at the time have told mm. you what I was feeling. So yeah, I walk into that room, and I'm feeling immense pressure to do something. If I'm the chaplain, I'm supposed to do something. And uh, in this particular case, uh, it was about a dozen family members, and it was just like a, a it looked like a war scene. People were throwing up, um, people were headbutting walls. One lady was just punching as anything she could. And I walk in, and I'm like, man, I'm my job is to like calm these people down. Now, looking back now, or even after three months of chaplaincy, I would have learned my job is actually not to calm them down. Uh, my job is to calm myself down. And I think I think that's interesting that you say that because I, I feel like maybe not just people in ministry, but I think people in any type of leadership situation, whether you're a parent or you know you're a student in a school or a classroom full of people, that you walk into certain situations where people are losing it right. in a sense, and you feel like the whole weight of the whole room, whether it's a congregation or your family is upon you. Right. And I think the common misconception is that we think that we have to be the ones to deal with it. Right. I think I think the number one area of growth for any leader is to overcome the internal and the external pressure to do something. Yep. That's it. And you what I learned as a chaplain and I think it is the same in leadership is that initial instinct to do something is almost always to quell your own anxiety. It's not actually for the person you're serving. So that's part of the reason I wrote this book is to help people understand how to overcome that internal pressure or the external pressure. In this case, when I was dealing with this family, the charge nurse calls me out of the room and tells me, listen, chaplain, their mum's dead. You need to get the family to go see the mother because we need the, the bed for the next patient. 
So wow. now I've got this external pressure to do something, which is totally not caring for this family. I'm just hustling them into a room to make space. But because I didn't know any better, I couldn't manage. And what I, what I learned about myself later that I didn't know at the time is I'm a chronic people pleaser. And so because I didn't know what to do and I was trying to please her, I ended up just doing what she said to do. And it was disastrous. Mm. So the chronic people pleaser thing that you just said. Yeah. So one, and I haven't had a chance to read the whole book yet because it's still in the editing phases, but you subjected your entire church staff for the most part, including me as an intern, to going through this first year class where you basically told us why we suck and how to get better about ourselves. <laughs> well, yeah, that's not how I would have, but sure. Well, I mean, that's what, yeah. Um, but I, I think that the the book, from my understanding, and just from being in the class that you had for your um, people who work there at the Discovery, is it's more about, uh, than, it's more than just figuring out how to handle your anxiety. It's also figuring out why you act the way you act right? and how... How to not necessarily fix that, but how to be aware of it so that way you can make changes in those situations that you find yourself in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not to fix it at all. Um, it, it's to it's to become as fully human as you can. Like that that's the goal. So it's not that your anxiety goes away or all your weird quirks and triggers go away. It's that they no longer block you from being present to people and present to God. And, and it's just really flipping the power dynamic. Uh, the class you're referencing, it's a nine-month class that we invite staff to. It's an optional deal. And I don't know, we've had maybe... Six- was an option for the interns. That's true. Yeah, interns <laughs> were required to do it. That's true. Anyway, the point is I, I found that it's a universal human experience. Mm-hmm. And that if you can notice and name the triggers in your own life, uh, they no longer have as much power over you. And you find this like whole other vista of life on the other side of it. I don't know if that was your experience at all. No, it definitely was. I When I get asked by people who are looking at maybe a residency option at our church, um, what what it's like, the, one of the first things I tell them is, well, you have to go through this leadership class and it's really, really good. It's so good, in fact, that it put me in counseling. Um, <laughs> if that's yeah. a testament to it, I don't know what it is, is that I think it really, it made me kind of take a look at myself and find out how much just baggage I was carrying around from past experiences and family experiences and how they impacted the way that I interacted with people right. and came into situations with anxiety. And right. I, and I think that what, what people are going to get from the book when it does come out is that there is more to it than just like what we were talking about them just managing anxiety. It's also taking a look at yourself and finding out why you are the way you are. Right. Yeah, that's right. So half of the material is really focused on your own internal anxiety. So I mentioned the people-pleasing. You know, and another thing I learned about myself through chaplaincy is um, when I don't know what to do, the way I cover it is I look certain. So often, and people have told me this, people who I lead and people in my family, they'll say, you actually are not as certain as you sound when you say something. And I'll be like, oh, that's right, yeah. Like, I'll, I can sound more sure than I really am. And it's just me covering my insecurity. But until I was told that, I didn't know that it's how I show up. And it really has an impact on people. If I don't actually know, but I sound certain, they take it as like an edict. And then these poor people are now down this path that I may not even agree with in a week or two. So yeah, that's half of the material is is learning to pay attention to your own internal triggers. And every one of us have, I don't know, it's, I mean, loosely, every one of us have somewhere between 30 and 70 
different triggers that if you can name them, they no longer have power over you. But the other half of the material isn't just your own internal anxiety, it's group anxiety. It's, it's learning how to pay attention to recurring relational patterns, like maybe between you and one other person, but also between all the people you lead. So for example, if, if, uh, if anyone who's listening leads a team of people, you may never have addressed it, but you could probably right now press pause on this and just think back to the last staff meeting you had or the last team meeting, and the same people are always quiet, and the same person always has the meeting after the meeting. They never speak up, and then the meeting's over, and they have their own side meeting. Uh, it's always, almost always the same person that gets the last word. And so if you can learn to not just manage your own internal triggers, but start to pay attention to the way a group relates, holy smokes, does that change your leadership. It's, a, it's like a game changer. So that's the other half of the book is group anxiety, um, relational patterns that make you stuck. What happens when you try to fix a relationship and your attempted solution makes it worse? We cover all of that in the book. Can you expand on that last one there? The one you just mentioned about family relationships. Was, was that family relationships? It's any relationship. Yeah, if, okay. you're in a, if you're in a recurring relational pattern and it's driving you crazy and so you try to do something about it, half of the time or more, your attempted solution is actually going to make the pattern worse. Mm. And that's because there's this whole theory of change called cybernetics that we get into in the book. And there's a type of change called first order change and then there's second order change. And most of us, because we're stuck in our own system, we're only able to make first order change, which actually makes it worse. Uh, second order change is a true dynamic breakthrough. So, for example, uh, one of the stories I use in my book that my son gave me permission. Well, uh, my, my sons play competitive basketball, and one of my boys came home from practice one day, and he's all mad. And he's like, man, William won't pass the ball to me. And then we said, well, what do you do about it? And he says, well, then I don't pass the ball to William. Mm-hmm. And so if we just stop right there, the problem is that William won't pass the ball. Mm-hmm. My son's attempted solution to the problem is to not pass the ball to William. Now, you already know that did not that only made it worse. Yeah. Right. And so now the more that my son withholds the ball from William, the more William's gonna withhold the ball from my son. And now the problem is entrenched. Mm-hmm. And that's when we get stuck. Mm-hmm. So everyone has problems. Problems are completely normal. Problems in relationships are completely normal. This book and my material will not stop you from having problems. Yeah. What it does is it stops you from getting stuck in problems. Mm-hmm. And so you, could, you can move through them. So uh, we applied a second order change to my son. I, my, my wife and I, my wife's a therapist, and we've often felt sorry for our children because, <laughs> you know, a normal parent, your son would come home and your son would say, hey, William's not passing the ball. And then you'd say, man, William must be a jerk, you know. Yeah. But because my poor son um, has parents in, in this theory, we said to him, if you want... William to pass the ball, you have to start passing the ball to him every time. Mm. And he got anxious. He's like, that's not fair. You know, it's, it's, I'm rewarding him as a ball yeah. hog. And so our job as a leader is to be a non-anxious presence when he's getting anxious. Mm-hmm. And we said, you know what? Um, if you actually, when you have the ball, don't even pass to anyone else on your team. Just pass to William. Even if Caden's open, wait until William's open. Pass to William six times in a row. It'll change everything. And sure enough, be- not because my son agreed with it. He actually thought we were nuts. 
but he is unfailingly courteous and respectful to his parents. So he tried it, mm-hmm. and in one game, the, the whole cycle broke. And uh, what, what I think is powerful about this, this is a fairly innocuous example. You know, yeah. it's a couple of kids on a basketball yeah. team. But I, I use it in the book because um, it never involved the coach. It never involved everyone else in the system, the rest of the team. It never involved a parent meeting, and it never involved William and my son talking about it. Mm. In fact, if they had sat down to talk about it, it almost for sure would have made it worse. So, so are, you, are you saying don't talk about it? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I'm just saying that our, our own attempted solutions tend to make it chronic. And okay. so you generally have to look at it at what's known as a systemic level. You have okay. to be able to, you have to learn how to map out the pattern. And then there's some tricks we have in the book called reversals and paradoxes that you can apply that will actually break the pattern. So what... Uh, Okay, so thinking about those those role, those little tiny tricks that you're just talking about yeah. with your son, what trick would he have been using to reverse that role? Yeah, he used a reversal. We applied okay. a reversal. So the problem was uh, William never passes. Okay. So the solution was pass every time to William. Okay. And we okay. just switch it because his attempted solution was never pass to William. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I've done this. Like, so for example, if you're a leader of a team right now, you can start looking at your team and you can say to yourself who on my team never speaks up unless I call on them? And and at that point, once you've figured out who that person is, you now have a decision to make. Am I going to let them get away with that? But not only that, why are all of us letting them get away with that? Mm -hmm. and, And I don't mean let them get away with it, like punish them. But your team is missing out because Mr. Quiet, we'll call him, or Miss Quiet, isn't contributing and Mr. Know-it-all is always talking. Now, what if as a leader, instead of being as concerned with the agenda, you became as concerned with the way your team relates to each other? Mm-hmm. That's a game changer. Mm-hmm. That, that brings health. Um, that doesn't just help Miss Quiet, it also helps Mr. Know-it-all. And the way you apply that solution, if your team is somewhat healthy, is you bring everyone in on it. You don't just secretly do these little manipulative things. You'd actually at the next team meeting say, hey, I've noticed this pattern and I think it's time we changed it. We don't hear from you very much, Beth. Like, why is it that you are never comfortable speaking up unless we ask you? And if she's feeling safe and and feels like you're a safe person, she might actually tell you. And it might be something like, listen, I'm a slow processor and you guys move so fast. I need time and then I'm ready to talk. Or she might tell you, uh, well, you know, three meetings ago I I suggested this idea and you guys made fun of me or whatever it is. But if you can lead on that gear, it's a whole other gear. And most leaders, particularly type A leaders who are so driven by results, Mm -hmm. they don't tend to pay attention to this. Mm. Do you think – that's I have a suggestion for a leader. If 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 they are in that situation, they need to go talk to somebody about it. Yeah. Would you say that somebody is less likely to um, listen to what you have to say as a leader if there's not some type of vulnerability coming from you? Yeah, it's actually one of the things that haunts me about my material that uh, this book and even this podcast is we share these tools, and in the wrong hands, it's like a, a power tool. Explain that. What do you mean? They by can that? cause damage in the wrong hand. You know, a power tool like a chainsaw can do a lot of good or a lot of harm depending on who's managing the tool. Okay. So yes, if if you're a leader and you're not a self-aware person, 
if you're listening to this and you're more interested in inflicting it on your team than dealing with your mm. own self, it's you're going to damage your team. So, for example, in my case, I have leaders that work under me. I'm I'm kind of the top of the food chain in our church. I'm the lead pastor, but I have several leaders, including yourself, who have full permission to speak into my life. Um, you know, I've got a leader who's worked for me for years, and she'll often say to me, she'll be like, "Hey, so you know, you have this tendency." to kind of say something and it sounds like it's a core conviction of yours, but then three weeks later you forgot about it. So I'm about to go put all this time into this thing you said. Mm -hmm. Are you still interested in it? And if my ego was out of control or if I felt threatened, I'd punish her for that honesty. But it's actually very helpful mm -hmm. for our team for her to lead me as much as I'm leading her. So yeah, I would say, Boy, if you're a leader and you're hearing this stuff and you can't wait to inflict it on your people, man, first take your own pulse. First, yeah, I, yeah. First work on yourself. And by first, I mean for months, like not like for an hour. Yeah, so, you, so what you're saying is if you're, if you're going to this, read this as a leader, specifically a church leader yeah. or just any organization. Any organization, a leader, any parent. Yeah, you should not try to do this right away with the people in your life until you've got somewhat of a handle on yourself and are able to go to these people and say, hey, um, I've been reading this material, I've been working on this stuff, and this is why I've been doing stuff in the past, and here's some of my faults, and yeah. let me be vulnerable with you about that. I, I would even say, tell me some of my faults. Okay, tell me some yeah. of my faults. So no, you, you wouldn't have to necessarily read it ahead of time. Like You can absolutely, in fact, I, I wrote this book for a team to go through together. Okay. It's just one of those books that you're going to get more out of it with dialogue than just reading. Okay. It, it, so that's why we, you know, this book started as a class mm -hmm. and then it became a book. And part of my concern in writing it as a book is I think the power of this material is in dialogue. Mm -hmm. I think there's no problem with a leader reading it along with their team. The problem would be if the leader is saying, my team needs this mm. and is not being an equal where the team can't speak into the leader's life. I think that's where it would mm. get really dangerous. Particularly if, if a leader's a narcissist. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some pathologies that um, the leader shouldn't be leading this. And of course, if you are a narcissist, you generally don't know that. So need someone else to decide. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I would just say, since we're doing some disclaimers, uh, there are some people, and maybe you're one of them as a listener, you've had significant trauma in your life. And this material can help with that, but it really mm -hmm. is not qualified. To really deal with deep trauma, uh, PTSD, uh, things like that. And, and this material could uh, trigger some of that in your life. So we do have a couple of warnings in the book when we're getting into some more personal material. That's good. Yeah. So I know one of the chapters, and I just looked at it here, is that you've got something about genograms. Is that right? Yeah. How does that? How does that separate um, type of looking at the way people act, the way they act? How does that play into the book? Yeah, yeah. So the book is loosely divided in half: your own internal triggers, and then learning how to pay attention to group anxiety, family systems theory, and a theory of what's known as cybernetics. Mm -hmm. So that's not original with me. Some, some people would have read some of this material, but I think, I think I'm the first author to attempt to synergize it into one book mm -hmm. where it's internal and external triggers. Okay. Uh, so a genogram is simply a deeper tool for an internal 
source of anxiety. So we begin um, with just some very simple tools. We have a whole chapter on sources of internal anxiety. And uh, for example, one source would be um, uh, judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in the book, we actually ask you to get out a piece of paper or open your computer and take time and write down the kinds of people you judge. Because you cannot judge someone and be present to them at the same time. Wow. You have to choose. Uh, another source of internal anxiety is cynicism. You can't be present to your own cynicism and another person at the same time. It's not possible. And what tends to happen is we get cynical or we get judgmental. But if we don't examine it, we, we don't realize the distance it causes. So uh, I'll give an example on judgment. Uh, and it comes out of the book and it comes out of chaplaincy. Uh, I, I had to go to the emergency room because a mother was on carpool, she'd seatbelted herself, but she didn't seatbelt any of the kids in the car. Oh, man. Yeah. She was in an accident. Every kid ejected out. Every kid was out through windows. It was awful. So when I came down, there she is in the waiting room, waiting, while all the kids, her son and all her son's friends, are back behind the double doors getting worked on. Are they going to live? Are they going to die? It was awful. Mm. And I had to sit with her. And in my family, it, this sounds crazy, but in my family, not wearing a seatbelt is like three steps lower than murder. It's just, if you're in the Cuss family, you, you just wear a seatbelt, it was not even an option. And I didn't realize until that moment that I'm judging her for not, wearing a, for not strapping up these kids. Like, yeah. we're dealing with life and death and here yeah. I am judging her about a stupid seatbelt. I didn't know that until I made my list of people I judge, and it's an embarrassingly long list. Wow. So that's a short tool. I mean, you can do that tool in an hour or two. And then as we go through the book, we go into deeper tools. Genograms is a deeper tool. There's a tool called a verbatim. We also go into the most personal tools of childhood vows and idols in our life. Um, so the, we just kind of do a progression what, of tools. What's a childhood vow? Explain that. Because some people might not be familiar with Oh, I'm sure. Is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we learned about childhood vows in chaplaincy, but actually uh, where I felt the best teaching was was a guy named Jim Harrington. And I referenced Jim in the book too. In fact, I, I, with his permission, I used some of his material. Mm -hmm. A childhood vow is an agreement you make with yourself to either avoid pain or run toward pleasure. And it can take a while. Some vows, you know them. So even when we mention a childhood vow, some of our listeners right away, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I, I made one of those. Like, for example, I could never please my mother. And so I vowed when I'm a mother, I will always, you know. Yeah. And one of the ways you know it's a vow is you, you listen for superlative. If you mm -hmm. say, I will always or I will never, that's often tied to a vow. And it's often tied to some kind of a wound in childhood. Um. And and so what happens is is you make a vow to survive childhood, but then it's kind of like clothes that don't fit. You've grown, but the vow's now strangling you. It's keeping you back in that past, and you're not able to be free. So we do a, a thing in the book on how do you name and actually uh, shed a childhood vow. It's quite a powerful time. Wow. Yeah. So I want to shift gears here and. Um you tend to ask your list, the people that you interview, the same questions. So yeah. now I'm going to do that to you. Yeah, great. <laughs> so we, you've already kind of given some examples of ways that you've had mistakes happen with whether you're in chaplaincy or in ministry yeah. and been vulnerable about those. But what, what is one way that 
you feel your anxiety? Is it your racing heart? Is it is it your mind? Is it what is it exactly yeah. for you? Yeah, right. Yeah. So for me, anxiety. I first noticed anxiety in my mind. Okay. Uh, my solution to anxiety, when left unchecked, is think harder or worry more. Mm. And that's actually a way you can know you're anxious is when you're just applying what we call more of the same. Yep. So if I've got a situation going on and I'm worried about it, I'm applying more of the same. I'm going to worry harder. As yep. if, and it never works. Mm-hmm. But so for me, it's in my mind. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually really anxious and it was my heart. That was unusual for me. It's huh. usually mental. And my signs for it. So I think once you've figured out where it starts physiologically, you've got to have an intervention. Oh, yeah. Uh, so for me, my signs are a three. If I am in bed and it's the last thing I'm thinking about before I go to bed, and then when I wake up in the morning, it's the first thing I'm thinking. Like I am thinking about it as I'm waking up. Mm-hmm. That's a sign I need an intervention. Uh, sometimes, this hasn't happened as often lately, but there's times where I'll be visiting with my kids. Uh-huh. And when they, were early, uh, when they were younger, my wife would just come up to me and she'd say, where are you right now? which was a very kind way of saying, you're not here right now. Mm. And I was up in my head. Okay. Uh, now my kids are older. Uh, I've noticed one of my kids will stop speaking and just stare at me. So they'll be telling me a story and they can tell I'm not listening, <laughs> even though I'm looking at them and everything. And I'm even like, mm-hmm, and nodding. And they'll just stop and look at me until I suddenly kind of come out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, again, it's a very kind way that they're like, hey, where are you? Uh, and that's usually a sign I need an intervention. Oh. And the, so there's three, right? You talk about those three. When when you ask the questions to everybody that you've interviewed, it's a racing mind. Yep. Um, what was the yeah racing mind, spinning heart, tightening gut? Okay, and that's mine is tightening gut. Tightening gut. Yep. Yeah, yeah. To say more about that. Um, well, <laughs> I, I I think for me, I, I first started noticing it when um, my my gut really starts to kind of constrict, and I get like this not necessarily a, a pain of fear, but like a pain of um, hot white that kind of comes up through my stomach up to the rest of my chest to my face to the to my body mm. and then my heart starts to race so mine's kind of a two-fold step where yep. I know that if I'm really anxious I have to notice it first I have to take a couple of breaths and then ask myself why am I being so anxious right now what is yeah. what is triggering that yeah. and I and I think you know back to talking about what this book has done is it's made me realize what that is, yeah, um, and being able to name it, like you said, is one way for you to start working on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just noticing like it's pretty amazing uh, how many people just haven't really taken time to answer the simple question: How do I know when I'm anxious? Yep. And so we start physiologically because that can be the, the the easiest, lowest hanging fruit way to start to figure out you're anxious. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel loved? How do you feel the most loved in your oh, life? Oh, man, yeah. I absolutely feel loved in the hug of my wife. Just like, I, like so I try to get my guests to be really specific because oftentimes my guests will just say, oh, family. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> but when I think like specifically when I feel like flooded with love, it's the hug of my wife. It's her laugh. that, that Like her belly laugh is just the best. It's also... When my family, my kids and my wife and I are gathered around a table and just having so much fun, mm-hmm. I just feel so loved. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then um, another way I feel loved, I feel loved. It's, it's weird. I don't know why it is, but I feel loved when I'm in nature and I come across wildlife. Mm-hmm. It's the craziest thing. We were driving home the other night, Andrew and I, my middle son, and there was a raccoon hiding in the sewer 
as we pulled into our neighborhood. And this is how crazy it is. And I pull over to look at the raccoon and there's just this wash of love. Not from the raccoon. It's like a, it's like an act of worship for me. Wow. It's like that, I feel loved by God through that. That kind of ties into the, the last question I was going to ask you, which is what do you do to help manage your anxiety to get away from things when you need to? What do you do for fun? Yeah. And it sounds like nature is one of those. Nature is a huge one. Yeah, I have a tool in the book uh, where I encourage everybody to just make a list and it's the simplest list. Just make a list of all the people and all the places, like literal destinations, and all the activities that make you feel human and alive. And the list should cost everything from free to lots of money, mm-hmm. and it should take everything from five minutes to lots of days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, fly fishing for me. Okay. Uh, it's usually half a day to a day. It's usually free to $20. And there's just something about being knee-deep in water. Uh, th- I mean, for me, the home run is if I'm catching trout and there's an elk that's jumped into the water to take a drink, like, I, take, <laughs> take me Jesus now. And it's really interesting what makes the list. Like, um, uh, I discovered years ago by accident that um, Gregorian chant at the local monastery. Mm. It's a two- or three-day thing. It's a few hundred dollars. Man, oh, man. It's, it's life-giving. And then, so for example, in, in like this racing mind idea and how do I intervene, the hug of my wife is on the list or laughing with my kids or um, I have a list of friends and sometimes I'll just call a friend mm. and it takes five, 10 minutes and I'll just, I, sometimes I'll say, hey, I'm really anxious right now. And sometimes I'll just call and catch up uh, and I get off the phone and I feel better. It's weird. Mm. But I think a lot of anxiety happens because leaders just try to be too earnest. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't know how to apply a solution that's unrelated. They just, mm-hmm. They're so stuck in the lane that they just try harder. So we really work on the book of getting you off that treadmill and call somebody or uh, on the, one of the things on my list is playing guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, just 15 minutes of playing my guitar changes things. Wow. Yeah. What, uh, I know everybody's curious about this. What is your most expensive thing on your list? <laughs> I would say so, oh man. Yeah, I, I, I am reticent to share it because it feels so indulgent, but at, at the 10 year anniversary at our church, our church gave our family this incredible gift of grace, which was a trip around the world. Mm-hmm. And international travel would be the most expensive mm-hmm. thing on my list. I love it. We got to go to several different countries. We got to be there as a family. So talking about the laughter of my family, like when I look back on that trip, we got to travel the world for six weeks. And we were in a developing nation, we're in Europe, we're all over the place, Eastern Europe. It was incredible. But when I think back on that trip, the thing I think about most isn't the places, I do think about the places, but the thing I remember, it was like, it felt like hundreds of hours of laughter. That's what I remember. It was just like, oh, it was a gift. Yeah. Wow. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Uh, I look forward to hearing more from the other interviews that you've got going on with the rest of the guests that we have. Great. Thanks, Brendan.